This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. To mark the 50th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of A Clockwork Orange, we're examining Burgess's relationship with the director. In part four of our series, we speak to David Mickicks, a more distinguished professor in the English department of the University of Houston. David has recently published his book, Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker, which draws on interviews and new archival research to explore the personal side of Kubrick's films. David has also written books on subjects as wide as Saul Bellow, Jacques Derrida, and The Art of the Sonnet. He's also edited the annotated Emerson. In 2017, he was awarded a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, and he is a regular columnist for Tablet magazine, in which he writes about Jewish culture, history, and politics. Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker, is published by Yale University Press and out now. For more information, head to the link in the description of this episode. Here's Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to David Mickix in November 2021. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, David Mickix to the Burgess Foundation podcast. Uh, David's the author of Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker, published by Yale University Press, among many other distinguished books. Uh, David, welcome. Now, Thank you, Andrew. Uh, a great pleasure to be here. A, a pleasure to have you. Burgess is one of many writers who worked with Kubrick or whose work was adapted by him. And uh, maybe we could begin with quite a broad question about what kind of relationship do you think Kubrick wanted with his writers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a, that is a great question. Uh, Kubrick, uh, from the beginning, I think, had, uh, you know, had, a, had an idea of himself as a screenwriter. He, uh, he wrote film treatments uh, during his second marriage in the late 1950s, a very, very troubled marriage to uh, the ballet dancer Ruth Sabatka. And some of those treatments really do you know, show a kind of Dostoevskian uh, tinge to his, uh, you know, to his dramatic, uh, his dramatic uh, talent. And uh, he, he wrote full-fledged scripts as well during that period. Um, but he, um, in the, the films that he actually made, uh, all are co-written by, uh, by others. And uh, some of the more familiar examples are um, uh, Paths of Glory, right? Uh, in which uh, he worked with Calder Willingham and Jim Thompson. There, there are cases in which, uh, for example, in Dr. Strangelove, uh, he worked with Terry Southern. And Terry Southern tells a great story about how you know, Kubrick would pick him up at, I think, five o'clock in the morning. And you know, they, they would have a writing desk in the, uh, in the back of the car. So they'd sit there and write together on that desk and, uh, you know, as they would go into the studio early in the morning. And uh, each day they would rewrite. Uh, so it was a very involved relationship that he had with his uh, uh, with his scriptwriters. Another example is Diane Johnson, with whom he wrote *The Shining*, and they really puzzled it out together. Uh, uh, Stanley wrote a lot of the part of Jack, Jack Torrance, who goes mad in the Overlook Hotel, and uh, you know he and Johnson talked a lot about uh, ideas of horror about Freud and Bruno Bettelheim and the uncanny and so on. 
So, um, uh, so these were very active relationships. The relationship with Burgess was a bit different, first of all, because Burgess did not write the, um, did not write the screenplay for A Clockwork Orange. Uh, Kubrick wrote it himself, and it was, in fact, the first screenplay that he had written solely by himself uh, in his movie career. Um, it's also unique because Burgess, uh, years earlier, uh, in the 60s, uh, the, the novel of Clockwork Orange came, back, came out in May 1962. Um, a little bit after that, Burgess, who was hard up for money, sold the screen rights to Cy Litvinoff and Max Robb. The clothier was also a, uh, you know, also interested in movies. And uh, uh, he sold it for only a couple of hundred dollars. So, you know, when Clockwork Orange finally, finally uh, hit the screens in uh, December of 1971, uh, about uh, 50 years ago, uh, uh, people would stop Kubrick, uh, sorry, people would stop Anthony Burgess on the street and say, you know, Clockwork Orange is at top of the charts, you know, it's such a big hit, congratulations. And he would say, yeah, I sold the, you know, I sold the, the, the book rights for a couple hundred dollars. So uh, because of that, uh, uh, he did not see uh, profits from the movie until 1973, when he filed suit, not against Kubrick, but against uh, Litvinoff and Rob. And he did, he did win a, a percentage of the, uh, of the uh, royalties from the, from the film after that. We're great, very grateful, in fact, because some of that money is still fun, funding the work of the Burgess Foundation to this day. Wonderful. Now, you draw a very interesting comparison uh, between Lolita and The Clockwork Orange when you say that both of these stories are first-person confessions written by very seductive criminals. Um, and I, I, thought, I thought that was interesting in itself. But why do you think Kubrick was attracted to these stories? Uh, yeah, that's a wonderful question, Andrew. That's fascinating because uh, you know Kubrick himself was uh, was ultra cautious, not ultra violent, but ultra cautious, and uh, you know frequently described himself as a coward. Uh, although he was fascinated with war, and he made several of his greatest movies about war, uh, he um, he himself avoided uh, occasions of you know physical risk or physical courage. And so I think part of it is just the attraction to uh, to an opposite, uh, an opposite that 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 really brings out, uh, you know, some of the, the the kind of primal energy of of cinema. Why do we go to the movies? It's to be stirred up, you know, to be set in motion by this spectacle that that brings out impulses in ourselves that we usually wouldn't acknowledge. So you can see that certainly with. Uh, Lolita, you know, which is about a taboo subject. Uh, you know, you have the the, the child rapist uh, Humbert Humbert. You know, so sophisticated, so dry, so witty, and uh, you know, of course, Clockwork Orange is also about a rapist, uh, 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 Alex Large. So, in in both these cases, uh, Kubrick is um, examining something for which we have mixed feelings. Uh, you know, were simultaneously uh, drawn in by the charm or the seductiveness or the wit, you know, the wicked wit of these characters. Uh, that's certainly true of both Humbert and Alex, that they're remarkably witty and charming. And uh, yet we're also repelled. 
And of course, that's more true in the case of Alex that were repelled than in the case of Humbert in the movie. Um, you know, uh, Kubrick uh, left out some of Nabokov's quite clear signposts instructing us that we ought to be suspicious of Humbert, you know, that we uh, ought to think of him as a, as a monster, which is indeed the way Nabokov thought of him. But Kubrick's, uh, Kubrick's Humbert does not appear to be a monster. You know, he's a, he's a sympathetic fellow for the most part, even as we do uh, sympathize as well with Lolita, uh, so wonderfully played by Sue Lyon. So um, I would say that in one way of putting it is that in Cl with Clockwork Orange, uh, Kubrick does what he, he did not do or did not want to do in Lolita. That is, he gives us a hero villain um, uh, by whom we're, you know, turned on or thrilled, and, uh, uh, but also somebody uh, uh, by whom we're disgusted. I wanted to ask you uh, as well about juvenile delinquency. You say in your book that A Clockwork Orange shows a whole new way of representing that, quite unlike the films that had gone before it. And can you tell us what's different about A Clockwork Orange compared with, say, Rebel Without a Cause or West Side Story? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I, 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 I do think that A Clockwork Orange fits into this genre of the juvenile delinquent movie. It also fits into the genre of the musical. Uh, you know, so we could talk about that too. But uh, first of all, the juvenile delinquent movie, you know, if you think of a film like The Wild One, famous movie with uh, Marlon Brando, or Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean, uh, these characters were, were very soulful and sort of, uh, you know, smoldering, inward, oppressed by the sense of the world, and they, they seem to be oppressed by life itself or the world itself. And I think of that moment in Rebel Without a Cause where James Dean says to his well-meaning father and mother, you're tearing me apart, you know, it's like in their, in their very urge to, you know, their very bourgeois normalcy is some sort of, uh, you know, drives him to desperation. And, you know, there, there's a sense in, in, in those movies, well, especially in, in Rebel Without a Cause, of the, uh, the kids as being, you know, these outsiders, these sort of fragile outsiders, you know, Natalie Wood and James Dean and Sal Mineo in that film. So none of this is the case in, uh, in A Clockwork Orange, which is, you know, to name another genre, the sort of gangster film. But... Um, it, uh, it is uh, an example, I think, of the juvenile delinquent film simply because Alex, you know, who is supposed to be a teenager, of course, uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell was 28 when he played Alex, but, uh, uh, you know, in the book and ostensibly in the, uh, in the film, he's, uh, he's much younger. And uh, there's a great deal of attention paid to uh, his home situation, right? You remember the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the doctor from social, not doctor, the, the guy from social services who comes to meet him, you know, to evaluate his home life. How, is, how are things going along with you, Alex? Um, it intersects with those juvenile delinquent movies because there is a sense of uh, perplexity or puzzle about, you know, why is this kid a bad seed? You know, what makes him evil? or what makes him at least bad. Evil is not the right word, perhaps, for the 
juvenile delinquent genre as a whole. So uh, in A Clockwork Orange, there's a very definite answer supplied by, by Alex himself, which is badness is of the self. You know, badness is of the self. Uh, this is a quotation from Burgess's novel, but it applies to the, the movie. Uh, uh, you know, but, but, and it's something that, uh, something that Kubrick too believed, that there's an element of wickedness within us, you know, that inevitably comes out. Mm. And what about A Clockwork Orange as a musical? I mean, we know that Burgess later, after the film was out, he adapted it as a stage musical. Um, but many of those elements are, of course, there in the novel and uh, kind of intensified in the movie in the sense that Kubrick brings um, various musical elements which are not in the book, such as Rossini and Elgar and so forth. And I'd always assume this is a kind of soundtrack playing in Alex's head um, through the film. So I guess that makes it a, a different kind of musical from, from West Side Story. I mean, there, there's no singing, right? Right. Yeah, well, there is, of course, uh, one instance of singing, which is uh, the most famous uh, uh, number in the film that is singing in the rain. And, uh, you know, the, the McDowell told this story several times to several different interviewers. So um, I'll, I'll give you the sort of bare bones of it, that they were sitting around on the set for um, three days trying to figure out the, the scene, and this ter- terrifying scene in which Adrian Corey is, uh, is raped by, uh, by the Droogs, by Alex and his thugs. And, uh, um, you know, she's uh, the wife of the writer, Mr. Alexander, and he wit- he's made to witness the rape. So it's a scene that's um, somehow, as one critic says, it's somehow ridiculous as well as, you know, strangely exciting and also repellent all at once. It's, it's a quite horrifying scene. But part of what makes the scene is the fact that uh, Malcolm McDowell is singing and dancing to Singing in the Rain, doing this soft shoe number. So they were sitting around the set for three days, according to McDowell, and then uh, Kubrick finally sat trying to figure out the scene. And then Kubrick finally said, um, uh, Malk, uh, do you, uh, can you sing? That, that's one version or another was like, uh, Malk, can you sing and dance? And uh, uh, McDowell said, well, I know one song, Sing It in the Rain. And so that's the song he chose. It was Malcolm McDowell's song. And uh, I think part of the brilliance, the the kind of uh, awful brilliance of the scene is the way in which um, what you see in Alex in that scene is not the kind of high polished cruelty of some film noir villain, you know, or some gangster. But what you see is really the kind of satisfaction of, um, you know, an 11 or 12 year old boy as he's, you know, going through this uh, comic uh, song and dance, and uh, which will finally lead to the the brutal attack on uh, on uh, Adrian Corey, which um, apparently you know Kubrick filmed this over and over, and uh, Kubrick had as as he as he sometimes did, he was fond of repeated takes, and it was very hard on all of them, but especially Adrian Corey, who uh, bears the brunt of uh, of uh, Alex's blows. So there's that scene, and then near the beginning of the movie, we have uh, that kind of, uh, that it's a sort of Wild West ballet between, uh, in, in fact, this was staged in a theater, I forget the name of the theater now, but it, it was a theater that was used, uh, that was used by Chaplin, 
um, uh, and Fred Carnot. Uh, so it's an old sort of vaudeville house. Uh, so we have this vast stage and uh, there's a group of rival thugs led by Billy Boy and they're, they're assaulting this girl. So when Alex and his droogs appear, they drop the girl, she runs away and the two gangs fight. And, you know, you see them sort of flipping each other through the air, you know, sort of in a, in a very ballet-like fashion to the accompaniment of Rossini's Thieving Magpie Overture, which seems like a, you know, it's a perfect musical choice. Uh, so we have that. And then there are other scenes as well in which uh, you can think of, uh, you know, you can think of this as a, uh, as a kind of musical. The comic scene, the, the speeded up orgy with the two teenage girls, uh, uh, we see Alex with uh, uh, Wendy Carlos's uh, synthesized version of the William Tell overture. Uh, uh, that that was a that 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 sequence posed a problem for the rating of the movie, as I'll as I'll uh, talk about later. But yeah, so there's a lot of these. Um, it, it it seems to be organized in the ending too, with the ode to joy, and of course Hollywood musicals are odes to joy. So we see this at the very end. Uh, much to our disquiet, as uh, uh, but also a kind of strange joy as Alex, you know, rises up from his hospital bed, and he has the fantasy of uh, having sex with a naked woman, and there are all these sort of gents and ladies in Edwardian garb surrounding him, applauding. So that fantasy at the end of the movie is the sort of, uh, you know, it's a big feel-good number. It's the resurrection of a maimed villain, as somebody, uh, uh, as, as another critic, James Nairmore, pointed out, uh, and similar in that respect to the end of Dr. Strangelove, which is also a musical number. So, yeah, these are all uh, connections between uh, A Clockwork Orange and the musical. It's very interesting about the Charlie Chaplin connection as well, given that uh, the, the presence of the bowler hats, which are not in the novel. Uh, also because Burgess's father, who played piano in the music halls, claimed to have worked with the brothers Sid and Charlie Chaplin when mm. they were starting out, uh, long before they, um, uh, Charlie made it to Hollywood. Mm. Uh, still, you, you say as well that the effect of A Clockwork Orange is to make the audience guilty about enjoying violence. I, I thought that was a really bold proposition, uh, and one that I wanted to stop and think about. How do you think the film achieves that? Mm. Well... In, in part, I've already alluded to it that that on every instance of uh, every instance of violence depicted in the movie, I think uh, provokes mixed feelings in the spectator. Although it should be remembered that when Burgess saw the movie once, he saw it several times. Of course, he saw it in a preview. Uh, he and his uh, wife and seven-year-old son were flown to uh, uh, to London and put up so that he could see the film in the uh, fall of 71 before it was released. But um, he then later saw it in a movie theater in New York. And I remember that in his memoir, Burgess says, uh, you know, he was horrified because the audience took this as, uh, you know, they took it as a straight celebration of violence. And they were, you know, sort of standing up and punching their fists in the air. But certainly, that's not the way Kubrick intended it. Um, it was not a glorification of the thug. It was not, uh, you know, an ode to violence. 
but it was meant to uh, it was meant to make us queasy because every moment where we might uh, where we might celebrate Alex's uh, you know prowess or and his finesse in executing violence, uh, we we also um, you know we also uh, find him repellent. I believe uh, his his most attractive moment, perhaps in terms of uh, an act of violence, is uh, that great scene at the marina where uh, in slow motion, you see Alex rise up. He said, I was struck by inspiration, like, uh, and he, uh, he slashes Gim, his fellow droog, uh, in the hand with his knife. And you know, this is during the sort of uh, the abortive rebellion of the droogs against Alex, and this is how he quashes it. Uh, so we see them subdued, all sitting around in the next scene, subdued to Alex. So that's one that's one way of uh, doing it. Another way of doing it is in that uh, the the rape scene, the rape of uh, Mrs. Alexander, or the, uh, the the assault on the cat lady, played by Miriam Carlin, uh, with that that penis sculpture. And in those cases, I think we're very um, you know we're very disquieted. Um, think about that scene with the uh, with the uh, penis sculpture. A very important work of art, as the cat lady tells Alex, and he proceeds to grab it and to kill her with it. You know, he smashes it into her face. And at that moment, when he smashes the sculpture into her face, you know, we have a, uh, you know, we have a sort of uh, uh, several jump cuts of uh, these cartoon images of mouths. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's a form of distancing as well. I mean, obviously, we don't see her actually being killed, but it's also a form of, um, you know, it reminds us exactly how uh, disruptive, disturbing, irrational, inhuman Alex is being at this moment. So in that case, and in the, the rape scene of Mrs. Alexander, we do not, we do not exult in, in Alex's violence. Thinking back 50 years to the, the critical response to A Clockwork Orange, um, I mean, it, it seems to me, reading about it and, and reading what the studio was saying to Burgess about it, 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 it was quite unexpected. It was almost unprecedented. Uh, though in some cases, as you've shown, the, uh, the, the critics were very negative about the film. Uh, do you think, as far as we can reconstruct it, Kubrick was surprised by what critics and reviewers had to say about it? Well, I don't know about surprise, but he was uh, surely displeased by uh, Pauline Kael's reaction um, because Kael said that Kubrick was, and I'm quoting, sucking up to the thugs in the audience. And, uh, uh, you know, this, of course, as I've just explained, was not his intention at all. Um, there were appreciative reviews, especially outside of New York. Um, Andrew Saris, who had disliked 2001, had panned 2001 and then uh, went back to it under the influence of a smoked substance, as he said, and uh, revised his opinion somewhat of 2001 and thought, oh, it really is a pretty good movie. Uh, Sarah said, I'm not going to change my mind on this one. You know, this is, no one will sit through this, A Clockwork Orange. You know, it's just too boring. So this proved, of course, to be not at all the case. But um, the, the opinions of the New York critics were, uh, uh, you know, were, were frequently quite uh, negative about uh, Kubrick's movies, um, including Doctor Strangelove, 
2001, and also Clockwork Orange. Um, but I think what Kubrick was surprised by and frightened by was the way in which you know the movie became so famous, um, such a phenomenon. Um, you know, part of the clues to the way that happened was not just the kind of shocking, iconoclastic nature of the violence in the movie, but also this the incredible style. You know, the way a whole world is invented. You know, we're turning the uh, we're, we're we're crossing the street now from um, the end of the '70s, the the era of glam. You know, the era of sort of. Uh, uh, gender tweaking rock and roll style. Uh, we're going into something new, something much more sort of quasi military with the paratrooper boots and uh, the cod pieces, the bloody eyeball uh, uh, armband, and the bowler hats, as you mentioned. So, this was a remarkable invention on the level of style. Um, but yes, Kubrick was. Uh, Kubrick was frightened by, well, for, for one thing, the number of death threats that he and his family received. And this is what caused him to, uh, to take the film out of UK circulation in uh, 1973. You also say that A Clockwork Orange, that the movie is completely at odds with those 1960s dreams of peace and love uh, and anticipating punk in the ways that you've described. It, it seemed to me that maybe that's part of its importance is that as the movie that comes after 2001, um, perhaps it's, it's challenging uh, a whole set of things uh, and assumptions and values which had been quite current up until that point. And then as you get into the 70s, there's this, this, this break, this sort of fissure. And, and now we're looking at, at something else, a different vision of, of what people are like, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can talk about it, and I think that's quite true, Andrew. That it's a, you know, it's a watershed. Uh, this is a real zeitgeist movie. You know, it's uh, it's like Altamont, the, the famous festival at which uh, you know the Rolling Stones play using the Hell's Angels as uh, their bodyguards, and uh, things things turn very bad. Someone is killed by the angels. So, um, you know, Altamont as opposed to Woodstock with its dreams of peace and love. So, yes, for all of the, um, there is, of course, a dark underside or a sinister element to, to 2001, but it's also a vision of, uh, you know, of serenity, uh, you know, harmony, uh, the, the, the emptiness, the, the, the wideness of the universe, these kind of speculative prospects. Who knows what the future of the human race will be? Whereas in A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick is making a statement that is, you know, as he as he said, he he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in which he said, you know, I do not believe in Rousseau. I do not believe that humans are born good. <laughs> you know, there is evil within us. And you know, Clockwork Orange is a sort of is digging down into that fact of what Kubrick sees as a fact. I'd like to widen the focus slightly, uh, if I may, to bring in the Napoleon film, which is the next point of intersection between Kubrick and Burgess. It's just after A Clockwork Orange has been released. Um, Burgess becomes involved in the Napoleon project, which had been around for some years. And we know that he sent the first half of his Napoleon novel, Napoleon Symphony, to Kubrick. And that book is 
dedicated to Kubrick, partly in the hope that it might be turned into a film. Uh, but I wonder what kind of movie about Napoleon Kubrick would have made if he'd found a, a way to realize it. Uh, that, that's another very interesting question. I think that Kubrick's, one of his basic motivations, one thing he really wanted to do was to make a war movie in which you could really see the, um, you know, the sort of gigantic scale of things. He wanted to lay out for the viewer, well, here is this army in this formation. Um, you know, the opposing army comes up on its flank. So all of this would demand, of course, thousands of extras. And in fact, Kubrick, uh, who did pre-planning for the Napoleon movie that he never got to make, um, he, um, he was setting things up in Romania. And uh, he uh, you know, claimed to have found the requisite number, you know, thousands of, uh, thousands of extras. And he said he could do it for about $4 million. Um, Clockwork Orange, by the way, cost $2 million. It was a very, uh, very inexpensive movie. Um, but yeah, so that, that was a bit of an underestimate. But the real reason, I think, that the studios were not interested in the Napoleon film, well, there were two reasons. One was an immediate one that uh, the, the, film, um, the film Waterloo, uh, uh, Sergei Bondarchuk's Waterloo, had done very badly at the box office. And uh, in general, this fed into a suspicion of, uh, of uh, historical costume ethics at that time in Hollywood. So, um, you know, the old line from some distributor is, uh, you know, he gets, a, he gets a movie, he gets the, the film in the can that week, and, uh, you know, the, the exhibitor, rather, gets the, the movie in the can. And, and he says, oh, no, not another movie where people write with feathers. <laughs> so, you know, that, uh, you know, th this is long before the uh, long before the age of the, uh, you know, the historical romance epic. And uh, which, of course, had done well in an earlier, done very well in an earlier era of movies. But by this point, the, uh, the late 60s, it was not... Uh, it was not a very viable genre. So that was one problem. But what kind of movie would he have made? I've read the Napoleon script, and it's not a bad script. It's a script by Burgess. I'm sorry, not by Burgess. It's a script by Kubrick. He wrote that script by himself. And um, I, I think there are certain possibilities there. Uh, Napoleon sounds a bit like Kubrick himself. He says things like, you know, the art of war is quite simple. You simply have to figure out everything in advance. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the basic point. You know, he's like this sort of, uh, you know, very logical person who attends to all the details, just as Kubrick did. You know, one of the lines about Kubrick being, um, you know, well, he wouldn't let so much as a trouser pleat go unsupervised. <laughs> this was, I think, Michael Hare who said this. I'm not quite sure. But at any rate, you know, yeah, Kubrick was intended, attentive to every detail and if you do that and think about everything as a chess problem, he was also a famous chess player, Kubrick, um, then, um, then you win the war. So part of the problem with the, with the Napoleon script is that, uh, you know, we never really figure out what leads to Napoleon's downfall since he, he's such a sort of seamlessly impressive figure. Um, that's one, that's, that's one issue with the, uh, with the script. So he surely would have worked that, that script over quite substantially had he made the movie. But of course it was the, it was the product of a, a long time obsession with, 
Napoleon on Kubrick's part. He had read hundreds of books about Napoleon, and he has a series of dialogues, which are quite interesting, with the Oxford historian Felix Markham, a biographer of Napoleon, in which they talk about, you know, different aspects of, the, of Napoleon and his times. So, yeah, I, I mean, you could say that instead of making Napoleon, he made uh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, that was his historical epic. Now, the, the next moment where Kubrick and Burgess um, cross, cross swords or encounter each other is, is the project which becomes Eyes Wide Shut. It's not quite called that in 1976 when they were talking about it. It's, um, it's the Schnitzler um, project. And you mentioned in your book that Kubrick was planning Eyes Wide Shut as a kind of sex comedy. And then when he was talking to Burgess about it in 1976, um, I think he had quite a clear vision of what he wanted it to be, um, which didn't coincide with Burgess. Uh, Burgess says you've got to set it in Schnitzler's, Schnitzler's own Vienna um, or a fin de siècle one with music from Richard Strauss, the metamorphosis. And I, I think probably that's what ends Burgess's involvement is, is that his vision is too uh, precise and at variance with what Kubrick wants. Um, but can you tell us a bit about how that project evolved over time? I think he'd been planning it for some years before Frederick Raphael came on the scene. Mm -hmm. Yes, he had indeed. And uh, it's it's a bit unclear when Kubrick actually read Schnitzler's uh, novella, which is called uh, Dream Story, or Traum Novella uh, in German. Um, he may have read it in the late 1950s. Uh, under the impetus of his, uh, his wife at that time, Ruth Sabotka, who was a refugee from Vienna. And, uh, you know, Ruth uh, knew a lot about the sort of uh, Central European literature and art, and she might have introduced him to it. Um, Kirk Douglas claimed that his, that is Douglas's psychoanalyst, had, uh, had given a copy of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Schnitzler to Kubrick. You know, this is also a great story because uh, Kirk Douglas, when they were filming Spartacus, about the same time, at exactly the same time, I think, when, uh, you know, Burgess had that, that terrible year in which he, uh, he learned he had a year only to live, 1959, and he wrote, I believe, five books that year, including A Clockwork Orange. At that same time, uh, Kubrick had been called in by Kirk Douglas to film Spartacus. Douglas had fired the previous director, Anthony Mann, after a couple of weeks. So um, Kubrick and Douglas also had their, you know, had their quarrels. And at one point, Douglas said, uh, okay, Stanley, in order to really understand me, you'll have to meet my shrink. And so this is how, <laughs> this is, it's quite funny. Yeah, so this is uh, what a Hollywood story, right? So, uh, so Kubrick did so. So the Schnitzler may have been given to him on that occasion. Um, but at any rate, he was deeply, he was deeply moved by this and deeply affected by it. And I think it had something to do with the nature of, you know, uh, uh, in someone who is completely bourgeois, you know, sort of, uh, uh, the ordinary man living a very square life that is Kubrick himself, right. Who has this kind of, uh, adventurous fantasy of transgression and of disloyalty to his wife, so, or trying to be disloyal to his wife. It's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, the film is like uh, Don Giovanni in the sense that, you know, 
it's hard for us to remember this. Don Giovanni never actually sleeps with a woman in the course of the in the course of the opera. So similarly, you know, the hero of uh, of Dream Story never sleeps with a woman either, uh, except for his wife. Uh, but that is the fantasy. That is the fantasy on his part, and it's the fantasy on her part as well. So uh, Kubrick's uh, Kubrick's last wife, Christiane, with whom he stayed for the last forty years of his life, very happy marriage. Uh, she remembers saying to Kubrick in um, sometime in the '60s, "You know, we're we're still too young. We've just gotten married a few years ago. We can't. You can't make this movie. Um, it's too dangerous, too risky." And as he said, he he uh, he kept with the idea of Schnitzler, uh, and he he uh, in various interviews he uh, he made uh, he was very complimentary about Schnitzler, even calling him you know, the greatest 20th century writer, or at least the great, the writer with the greatest psychological penetration in the 20th century. Uh, it's rather an overestimate, I think, but, uh, but he did like Schnitzler and it is an interesting book. So one idea in the seventies, as you mentioned, he returned to it was to do it as a sort of comedy with perhaps Woody Allen or Steve Martin in the, uh, in the role. And, uh, that, uh, you know, in, in black and white, he was thinking, you know, that faded away. Uh, what you mention as uh, Burgess's idea is, of course, very interesting for the book, as is Frederick Raphael's when uh, he finally does hire Raphael as the screenwriter. Uh, Raphael said, uh, I think it should be in a medieval walled city. And Kubrick's response was, we'll set it in New York. So, <laughs> whether he was agreeing with Raphael or not is, uh, is unclear. Right? <laughs> But the New York of the movie is, uh, it's, it's a sort of unreal New York. Of course, famously, it's, uh, you know, not filmed on the actual streets of New York. It's all a stage set, and it looks like a stage set. So he did want something, uh, he did want something artificial, I think, as the mise-en-scene, as the setting for Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut is another one of those enigmatic masterpieces, perhaps even more mysterious than 2001. Do you think the story does add up to a coherent piece of narrative? I think it does, but it took me a long time to come to that point. Uh, a friend of mine, Bob Kolker, who has written uh, wonderful books about Kubrick, uh, said to me once, uh, why is it that when I was so indifferent to this movie when I first saw it, why is it that I can't stop watching it now? Uh, there was a story, by the way, in uh, during the pandemic that there was a woman who had watched Eyes Wide Shut hundreds of times. She said uh, during the during the pandemic. So uh, there is something uh, addictive about the movie, but uh, but not at first. I think at first it does seem uh, somewhat disjointed, artificial, certainly off-putting. Uh, one uh, you know one invidious comment was that. Uh, it was one of the famous cracks about Eyes Wide Shut, about the orgy scene in particular, is whose idea of an orgy is this? The Catholic Church's? <laughs> I forget who said that, but, uh, but you know, they're, they're, in other words, it seems like very, ooh, decadent. You know, you have this sort of uh, very stagey, deliberately artificial presentation. But I think that was, uh, that was Kubrick's uh, intention, as others have pointed out as well, that, you know, it was meant to look fake. Anytime you try to realize a fantasy, it's not real at all. You know, there's just a sort of fakeness there. So I think the real heart of the movie is in the, uh, as I explain in my book, is in the, the, the conversations 
between the husband and the wife, between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who are actually husband and wife, of course. And, you know, the kind of the intimacy and sort of groundbreaking twists and turns of those conversations are really remarkable. But yes, I, I do think it I do think it hangs together. Um, for all that, it's the kind of odyssey of, you know, the hero wandering through the night. Uh, to me, it does have a uh, it does have a symmetry and it does have a, uh, a clear structure. Now, your Kubrick book is published um, by Yale University Press in their Jewish Live series. And it's quite a big question to close with. What do you think Kubrick's Jewish identity meant to him? And how far is that communicated in his films? Mm, not communicated very much, I would say, in some respects. But he was very conscious of it, of course. He was, uh, he was quite Jewish, I guess we could say, although he never had a bar mitzvah, apparently from sheer lack of interest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but he did re he read obsessively about the Holocaust and was planning to make a Holocaust movie from the, uh, uh, um, uh, the excellent novel by Louis Begley, The Wartime Lies, which Kubrick was going to uh, film under the title The Aryan Papers. So he, he never wound up doing that. But, um, you know, there was some respect in which he really identified with uh, Jewish American humor. Certainly that's, you know, you can see a connection to uh, to Mad Magazine or to Lenny Bruce in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, you can also see, um, you know, well, I'll, I'll just quote the words of Christian, his, uh, his widow, who said, uh, you know, we used to we used to tease him and say that he was like Tevye the milkman. You know, he would uh, he would raise his eyes to the sky accusingly <laughs> and go, "Oi, ah!" Uh. <laughs> so, uh, so he had uh, he had a lot of the you know the the verbal inflections that that one would associate with a Jew from the from the Bronx, which indeed was what uh, was what Kubrick was, um, and uh, and yeah. So uh, as with many Jews of his generation, you know, who were not observant in New York City, uh, also he had a great fondness for Christmas. <laughs> you see that this comes out in, uh, you know, in Eyes Wide Shut, which of course is a Christmas movie. You know, there are Christmas trees everywhere. Well, uh, David, thank you very much uh, for giving us such a fascinating overview of, of Kubrick. Um, your book, Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker, I, I recommend to everyone wholeheartedly. It's a, a great piece of research and a great piece of writing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. This was a lot of fun. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Stanley Kubrick, American Filmmaker by David Mickix, is out now. For more information on Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.